Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 337 and my conversation with principal percussionist for the Soul Philharmonic Orchestra and percussion professor Edward Choi. We'll be back with Ed in a moment. But first up, Marching Mizzou and Mini Mizzou news. We have finished a whirlwind few weeks in the athletic bands program at Mizzou. Early in March, our assistant director of bands, Dr. Christian Noon, took Mini Mizzou to Greenville, South Carolina for the women's basketball SEC tournament. The next week, our director of athletic bands, Dr. Amy Knops, took the group to Nashville, Tennessee for the men's basketball SEC tournament. And finally, yours truly won the trip lottery and got to take the group on a charter flight with all Mizzou personnel all the way out to Sacramento, California for the men's basketball NCAA tournament. Mizzou's men's team won its first NCAA tournament game since 2010, beating Utah State in the first round before sadly losing to Princeton in the second round this past Saturday. But it was a pleasure, it was also a lot of work, to oversee the band portion of that trip during midterms of our spring semester while being gone from town for six days. We were very fortunate to be well supported by the NCAA and athletics for the trip, and we're even more fortunate to have amazing spring weather in California, which also meant we got to take a day trip to nearby San Francisco. This was particularly great for me personally, as I was able to also get a chance while in San Francisco to briefly hang out with my cousin, Joe Sikoriak, and his wife, Paulina, for the first time ever. It was a great connection. And while Sacramento seems to get a bad rap, Walking around Sacramento and the downtown area and eating down there were also really cool. Additionally, we had our annual band banquet this past Monday and announced our Marching Mizzou leadership team for the upcoming season yesterday, getting ready for a very exciting upcoming marching season. And I'm still teaching. (sighs) It's a busy time. Enough about all that, though. Let's get to our talk with Edward Choi. Ed and I are meeting for the first time, but it was a real pleasure getting to talk to him. When I contacted him, I found out that he was a fan of the show and both listened and referenced previous interviews in our discussion, which is always incredibly appreciated to hear on my end. Ed's been a professional orchestral percussionist for the past 20 years or so. He's been involved with both the Seoul Philharmonic, as well as teaching within the local university system here. He's also been involved in programs through the Percussion Conservatory online website, as well as organizing the Korean Percussionists group on Facebook. He studied with a number of major performers and teachers over the years, including Beverly Johnston, Shi'i Wu, Michael Burrett, and Alan Abel. He also has a fascinating background from performing and teaching drum corps, as well as having a degree in English literature studying Korean and other Asian languages in his youth, and coming to the percussion profession full-time later in life. We get to all of that and more in this interview, so let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on February 22nd, 2023, and it begins right now.
Ed, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are at this point. Um, well, I am the principal percussionist of the Seoul Philharmonic in Korea. I've been here since 2004. Uh, I've had this position since 2007. Uh, I've started out as a section 2D member first. I also teach at the Seoul National University uh, percussion uh, instructor. And I also do some uh, percussion conservatory classes. Uh, I have a month coming up in April where I'm to give four classes and I'm in the middle of starting to video uh, tape myself for that. And I'm a full-time dad and husband. I also actually have a Facebook page called the Korean Orchestral Percussion Page. It's a group that I try to bring all the Korean percussionists together. And uh, I post a lot of stuff, but I also uh, host a lot of master classes. I've held about, we've hosted about 100 master classes in the last 10 years. And uh, we just had an online seminar with uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra uh, principal timpanist, Don Liuzzi, and principal percussionist, Chris Davini. And that's my way of trying to give back to the percussion community here and try to move the, uh, move the community forward. Well, let's start with your position. So if I got the timeline right, you, you were a member of the symphony before you became a permanent member of the symphony. Is that right? Um, I was always a permanent member, but I started out in the section and then I had to uh, audition to uh, become the associate principal and then later actually the principal gotcha so i've taken four auditions for my own orchestra <laughs> wow or were, they were all successful or was one of them a miss and then you got one uh well i got in and then i the first time i tried to become associate uh i didn't get the uh, uh promotion and then i took the audition again so gotcha. it took a, a little while to convince the conductor and then once once he realized that uh, he could trust me, later he uh, advanced me to uh, the principal position finally. So tell me about the original audition process. Um, what, like how many rounds, how long did it take, uh, where you were coming from to do the audition, all that? I was actually in my last semester of my DMA at uh, Rutgers University and uh, this was back in 2004. So I flew in for the audition. It was just at that time, just one round. Um, and it was uh, just your standard audition as far as uh, excerpts were concerned, the different instruments, xylophone, glockenspiel, snare drum, tambourine, cymbals. But back then things were less, online so we didn't it wasn't on musical chairs now we have a website called musicalchairs.info where orchestra auditions are listed worldwide so for example in my orchestra we have auditions this april not for percussion but for other instruments and all those positions are advertised there so we're getting many more candidates now we have three rounds of auditions as opposed to back then it was just one um, so I just flew in in the middle of my last semester, 
and got the position and moved here right away after I finished uh, finished up school. When you say rounds, do you mean like it was one day and there were you had like a a round and then a semis and a finals, or was it actually like literally a finals and that was it? Yeah, literally this one was just one round where I came. I, I just played one time. They let me play a fair amount. Oftentimes, for example, in America, when you have an audition, uh, you may have for a big orchestra, 100, 150 people. Right. So it could be spread over several days and you may only get five minutes, 10 minutes. So at that time, there weren't as many people. So I was able to play quite a bit. And so that's why it was just one round Um, in the upcoming auditions where we have uh, different people coming in for concert master, trumpet, positions, etc. We're going to have three rounds and the final round is even with the orchestra doing a rehearsal round playing excerpts with the orchestra. So things have evolved quite a bit with the popularity of the orchestra and also just uh, with the internet, um, more people knowing about the job out here. Do you, do you know how when you auditioned that first time, do you know how many other finalists there were oh there was about a dozen okay yeah and now i mean we after that we had an audition for um an associate position after i was promoted to principal and that was in new york i think we had 100 applicants and we were able to listen to 50 because we were on tour there so it rapidly grew uh and that was partially because we had a conductor Myung-hoon Chung, who is a, a prominent Korean conductor, uh, he came in and doubled the or tripled the budget and the orchestra became suddenly much more global. Timing was good for me. <laughs> it was a lot easier when I first got in. That's fine. No complaints. <laughs> Timing is important. Right? It is. It is. How are you informed that you won? Normally they'll tell you the day of, and I didn't, you know, in America, for example, you'll have an audition and then you don't start until the next season in September. So I literally got back on a plane, went to America, went, was in school and I got a call and they asked me where I was. And I said, I was in America. And they said, well, you got to start next week. And I, I was able, I was surprised that uh, they wanted me to start right away. So they, they gave me some time to, to finish school and gather my things. That was just a phone call. Uh, oftentimes, um, you may just get an email. And it's often the day of the night at that night, or um, you may be uh, actually, if you're in a super finals, say, for example, uh, in America, they will tell you right there at the end of the round. Where were you in the DMA process? Well, I say it was my last semester, but I still had time, uh, another, uh, well, several years, I still had to do some more courses. But in my coursework at Rutgers, at that time, it was a three-year uh, coursework uh, program and uh, and then you have, you know, your recitals. There's no dissertation. It was more of a performance-based degree. So there was four recitals. So I still had a couple of recitals left. So it took me a few years to finish that up during my work. 
I would have to imagine though that in your professional position, do you need it? Was this like you just wanted to finish it because you were it was your call, right? Exactly. Uh, it was it was basically my mother wanted me to finish. <laughs> you know, Korean moms, you know, they're they can be uh, famous for for being the sort of tiger mom pushing their kids to to do things. So I actually thought I wasn't going to finish it, but my I was so close that my mother really encouraged me to. So. I came back and I did another uh, course one summer, and then I had uh, two more recitals, a lecture recital and a performance recital, which were not easy to do, you know, once you're working to, to put that all together. Yeah, no, I'm, I bet. What's it like to have to, to re-audition with the, I know you're, you're going, you were going for a different position, but what it's like to already be fully working in an orchestra and trying to get a different position in that same orchestra. It's interesting. People say that it's hard and that, you know, moving up in your own orchestra is one of the harder ways to do it. I actually found it easy because number one, you're, you have some sense of security because you're already employed and for me, it was a learning curve, learning what our conductor liked. So I had studied in America. Uh, I grew up in Canada, studied there as well. But our conductor is well-known in Europe. He's based out of France, and he, he, he was at the time director of the Radio France Philharmonic, and he conducts a lot in uh, Italy. He's, he's a favorite at La Scala Opera in Milan, and... He's presently a uh, principal guest of Dresden. So stylistically, there are things that I had to adjust to I was not used to and playing in a European style. So it took me a while. Well, and I, what kinds of what kinds of things? What was what's what's different? There are things that American orchestras do. For example, if you look at the timpanists, a German style timpani, and now we can see with YouTube, you can see a real difference between say the timpanists of the Berlin Philharmonic and an American orchestra. Americans tend to be a little more subdued, whereas a European sort of timpani player may be considered flamboyant to an American. So there's a visual aspect. Um, there are things that you wanna do beyond the page that my conductor expected. For example, we were playing, I remember uh, the first thing I played with him was William Tell Overture, mm -hmm. just an encore piece. And I'm playing the cymbals and he looked at me and he was, I realized, cause he was gesturing that he was expecting me to make cuts to the music automatically. Like they were, they would do in the pit oh. in La Scala. Oh, because that, okay. Symbol part is very busy, yeah. And uh, at least this is what I uh, deduced. Um, actually, I was lucky that my teacher Alan Abel had taught me a version. He called it the Muti version because uh, his uh, one of his former uh, music directors was, was Ricardo Muti, now mm -hmm. conductor of the Chicago Symphony, a famous Italian conductor who was uh, director of the La Scala opera for many, many years. Instead of playing all the notes there, um, you edit out some of the notes 
and you highlight some of the musical phrasing instead. And I had learned that version. And in my, on my first rehearsal, the conductor's gesturing to me, looking at me, and literally as we're playing, I kind of deduced that that's what he wanted or he wanted something to that effect. So I tried that. He really appreciated that. And, you know, learning, learning to do uh, things beyond the page like that were part of me learning what he liked and also the traditions that come, come with certain repertoire. And so it's kind of a wild thing that you, it's like you, your, your brain went to, oh, I'm back with Alan, <laughs> almost like, right? It's like right there. I mean, that was really uh, incredible that uh, Mr. Abel prepared me for that. I, you know, he, he, I mean, Mr. Abel changed my life and I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. But just even in that first rehearsal with my music director, that was a big deal. And uh, I'm so glad that I studied with him. And these are things that sort of motivate me to teach my students to uh, learn the different repertoire and traditions to go beyond the page. And that's what's fun about uh, symphonic music for me. So, okay, so I, I understand that in terms of kind of like some of the, the things you were you now knew to expect or plan for or at least have in mind. Um, was there... To, to go for a position where you're already in, did that mean that you were, you would then have to still get all of your uh, excerpts back, like completely in, like, were you having to practice like you were, you didn't have a job? Oh yeah. No, I was practicing for about three years there, just trying to get promoted to uh, a position that I wanted. And also I felt we needed as far as the organization of the group. For example, in my orchestra, we did a lot of new music at that time. And so I was putting in a lot of extra work, acquiring instruments, uh, organizing things with assignments, et cetera. So, you know, you want to just make sure that uh, everything is in order. And I was already doing that job, actually. And I wanted to make sure that the uh, administration and the orchestra recognized that. And if it wasn't me, you know, whoever uh, would win the audition would be given that uh, that title and also the compensation plus the responsibilities. Gotcha. Now, what's the typical schedule for um, both rehearsals, amount of performances, all those, how long of the, is the season, all that stuff? Are all, are year round, actually, we don't, have much of a break in the summer. American orchestras will get two months, maybe six weeks. We actually have only a couple of weeks officially in the summer. However, uh, throughout the year, we get quite a lot of time off considering we don't get our official vacation time is only however many weeks. We're a government funded orchestra. So, uh, you know, in America, there's a lot of push to bring in audiences with movies, pops, mm -hmm. concerts these days. Yeah. It's getting more and more uh, uh, prevalent. And we actually don't do that. We're more like a European orchestra where we're government almost pretty much fully sponsored by the city, the taxpayers. So we do a lot of outreach. 
But our main subscription concerts, we may do in a month, we may do two programs, three programs. So whenever we have a, a, a concert, a subscription concert, meaning a, a big sort of symphonic uh, repertoire concert, that'll usually entail two or three days of rehearsals, 10 to four, and then one or two days of concerts. So it's actually a really good schedule. Um, in a top orchestra in America, you will maybe play three, four concerts a week consistently for uh, from September to June. Uh, and it can be a real grind, especially when you have something like a, a movie week where you're playing a Star Wars movie with just a ton of percussion, which, you know, I kind of wish we did because I love that music. But uh, ours are a little, uh, we're, we're more basically masterwork sort of uh, based, you know, um, all the big classics. Uh, so it's a lot, there are times where it's only two weeks a month, maybe. So that allows me time to be a dad and also, you know, my teaching schedule with, with uh, the university. Is the teaching position, was that a part of, an expected part of you taking this job or did, did you get to that eventually? Uh, yeah, no, that, that this, these are separate. And in Korea, for example, in Seoul, the city where I live in, I'm, uh, the greater Seoul area, I think it may be 15 to 20 million people. So we're looking at a dozen colleges with music programs, with music majors. There are many orchestras in this city. There's always uh, a need for teachers. And there are, of course, many teachers, but we go, there's a process that we go through where uh, you're not, you know, even though I'm an instructor, you're not permanently an instructor. You have a four year cycle, and then you have to either re-audition or the, the students will, uh, based on the, your evaluations as a teacher, um, you'll get rehired or not. So I've been, I'm on a second cycle now with the Seoul National University. I've been there four years already. That's why I've taught at other schools as well for um, some for six years, some for four. So that was something that I was really interested in doing, but it was not, it was nothing uh, automatic. I had to audition. How does the teaching schedule fit or wrap around or however you do it with the orchestra position? Well, I actually like to teach in a group setting. I learned from Alan Abel uh, privately, but also uh, often in the sort of uh, studio class and, and um, repertoire class. So I like to do that. So I found that with my students, by having a group lesson where they each, they're all there together, but someone will come and play their uh, prepared stuff and then we'll do a lesson and then everybody will make a feedback or it may be like a, an audition setting where they have to play in front of their peers, which makes them a little more nervous and later, you know, more comfortable. So I, basically do it on the weekends, either a Sunday night, maybe a Saturday night. I Now I recall, I was at uh, the um, Paris Conservatory, CNR, where uh, I sat in on Eric Samut's 
Murmba class and he mm. taught that way. And I found that to be a really uh, interesting uh, uh, way to do it. And I, I think the students learn quicker because they learn more repertoire that even they, though they may not be playing a certain piece, they, they, they see how uh, other people do it and how they're taught. So I kind of cover more ground that way. In those settings, do they, are they like, let's say you have a bunch that you're working with, are they all, let's say on snare or something like that? And you'll do a whole snare section and then you'll do like a mallet section or how, how does, what's the kind of the instrument interaction in those cases? Cause it's, I'm, I'm uh, sort of the orchestral percussion guy. Uh, we have a few teachers um, and in the past, I've had marimba specialists, I've had timpani specialists, but I basically covered the orchestral repertoire. So timpani, snare drum, keyboards, accessories. So depending on whatever audition or thing that a certain student is preparing for, and also marimba, I, I you know studied a lot with some of the great uh, American marimba teachers. So uh, I'll go into depth with that as well and the solo rep. So it just depends on the student and their needs and their jury assignments or recital pieces. On the student side, is it a challenge for them to get music, mallets, and like is or is it is there enough stuff nearby, like on the island, or do they have to actually get stuff shipped in from well outside? Well, Korea is a peninsula. Yeah, I guess it's kind of like an island because. Up north, I mean, oh, we don't. Right. Go, no one can go to North Korea. Sure, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, right. You know, people literally uh, buy stuff from Steve Weiss here too. You know, you can get Steve Weiss and Steve Weiss order here in sometimes as quick as a week. Uh, wow. These days, it's expensive. So sure. kids, they have. You know, you come to the studio. It looks like you know your regular American studio where kids will have their freer bag with all their mallets from freer innovative mallet tech you name it so you can get anything here there are percussion stores here as well but you know you pay a premium for those so sometimes it's easier or cheaper to just order from steve weiss is the school schedule the same is it a semester schedule yes there's two semesters although the way it's run here they start in march until the summer and then September till December. And same with my orchestra, the season starts in January until December, as opposed to September to June. Even though we are the same seasonally, we're, we're you know, our winter, unlike Australia where it's flipped. Right. Here we have the same seasons, um, but this, the actual school year schedule is slightly different that way. Kids have a more, a longer winter break. In fact, they're on break right now. That's the only difference. When did the, and how long has the percussion conservatory been going on? I think it's been a couple of years. Well, last year was the first full year of what we call the studio. Josh Fonderheide, the founder uh, of the conservatory, we met at uh, the, in, Kuala Lumpur, he was a member of the Malaysian Philharmonic. We met there a few years ago before the pandemic. He was a, he was a member and I was playing extra with them. 
I don't know if I encouraged him, but he was, I remember posting on Facebook, a bunch of just little short clips on orchestral percussion and, and, and tips for students. And I remember thinking, man, you have a real knack for this. You should do something with it. And then lo and behold, uh, he ended up leaving the orchestra and starting this project. And last year was the first year of the studio, which, which is a week-long, year-long, weekly uh, masterclass series where one teacher for one month will teach four classes, one a week, on different subjects. Mostly orchestral percussion, of course, but sometimes it'll have a marimba teacher as well. And uh, I did that last, literally a year ago, last February, and I'm about to do another month in April. It's a great platform um, and students who sign up for the studio, I think they get automatic access to the Will James Repertoire series, which is a video series of, uh, by Will James from the St. Louis Symphony, who I actually went to Northwestern with. Nice. And he made all these incredible videos of all the repertoire basically for auditions yeah. and all these tutorials. So uh, students have access to that. Josh just added um, a percussion literature and history course by um, the name's escaping me, uh, the former teacher at Arizona. Oh, Norm Weinberg. Yeah. Yeah. What an incredible course. I actually yeah. signed for that last year or a few years ago independently. And then now it's part of the studio. Um, or actually, I think you pay separately. I can't remember. Uh, but that is another great resource with so many amazing videos, et cetera, that, that illustrate the different instruments and the, the history behind the percussion uh, in Western classical music dating back to the Janissary. And of course, there are now, in fact, today, Joseph Pereira from the LA Philharmonic Timpanist, he's doing a, a actual class of uh, uh, listening to students play and giving them feedback. So there's a lot there. And I think uh, it's a great platform. And I love that it sort of equalizes everything. I mentioned earlier that, you know, with the internet, now things are getting more and more open and, you know, people are, are, are having more access to information. And so now you could be studying anywhere in the world with Joseph Pereira from the LA Philharmonic. These are some really great in-depth courses and, and classes that uh, I uh, really highly recommend. And I'm really proud to be a part of. You said you're about to do another set. So is that, is there an expected length of time or amount of videos? Like what's the, what, what is the expectation put on you for this? Well, I have four classes. So last year I did one on tambourine I did a bunch of repertoire, uh, orchestra repertoire with recordings. And then in the class, I made these videos. I, I, and then I, uh, I spoke about all the different instrument and uh, repertoire uh, that I performed that are often on auditions. I did a cymbal class. I did uh, accessories, tambourine, I mean, sorry, uh, castanet and triangle class. I did a bass drum rep class. And then this time around, I'm doing one on keyboards. So Zylo, Glockenspiel. I'm doing a fundamentals class. So rudimental snare drum, 
marimba stevens technique uh, i'll be doing um a fun class where i do unusual rep kind of interesting uh things that come up like cannons in 1812 overture for example you know something just fun and light and then i'll be doing a performance class where i i listen to students and give them feedback so that's four classes one a week in april and so the prep time for that it's it takes me quite a while because i need to make all these videos and they need to be of a certain quality and you know i i want to try to present something that students uh, can have uh, as a quick resource. For example, if you look at some of the videos from last year, there's still more, we put some highlight videos up, but there's, we're gonna make uh, more of those videos available now that a year has passed since I gave those classes where I play, you know, maybe 50 rep, uh, 50 excerpts on different instruments with recording. So I wanted to have that available for students, even you know when they're not a part of the studio, they could look it up and they're gonna be on YouTube and timestamp. So if you're playing, if a student has something uh, in orchestra that week at school and they're playing, you know, Capricio Espanol and the Castanets, mm -hmm. you know, and they need to look that up, they can find it in the videos and, and there'll be an example of me playing with the recordings in the different instruments and the techniques involved. So yeah, it takes a bunch of planning. It's, it's, uh, it's a labor of love, but uh, I hope that uh, this is useful uh, for students for years to come. Let's back up and then we'll, we'll there's, got, there's definitely some other things I wanna ask. So where did you end up growing up at? I'm Korean, but I was born in America and grew up in Canada. I, we moved to Canada when I was one. So I basically grew up in Canada, but I've always had an American uh, passport. Where in Canada? In Toronto. Mm -hmm. For a stint, we lived in Calgary, Alberta as well. But mainly, uh, I call Toronto home and I still have family there. So yeah, East Coast. I actually uh, ended up going to school in America because... Well, first I was really involved uh, as a young kid in drum corps. I started in junior mm. high. I played in drum corps, which back then, you know, there were drum corps in Canada. There's not so many anymore. Uh, so that's why I kept my American citizenship. I always wanted to go to the U.S. to play in the big drum corps. And uh, I ended up doing that. I went to uh, Boston and I was a member of the Boston Crusaders and later... I was in Indiana uh, with the Star of Indiana. And, uh, and then for music school, I ended up going for my master's to Northwestern and my uh, doctorate to Rutgers. Gotcha. Oh, and my undergrad was at the University of Toronto. <clears throat> Excellent. Do you have family members in the arts? I do not. Although we were really encouraged to play different instruments as a as a kid I started out on piano and then later I did trombone actually in <laughs> band when I was a, a you know in junior high but I really gravitated toward uh the drums and, and, and snare drum in the in drum corps specifically starting in junior high and uh I kind of got hooked first because I was just interested in going on tour they told me they would go on tour in the summer mm -hmm. and that really 
uh, sounded exciting. And then, you know, the rest was history. <laughs> but my brother, for example, he played uh, violin, guitar. My sister was a uh, pianist, but uh, they ended up uh, going in different uh, fields later. Gotcha. Was it drum corps that got you, or was it like school band that got you to do, or lessons that got you into the percussion thing uh, outside of doing piano? Yeah, I mean, I was only on, I only studied piano just briefly when I was a, a kid. And that was kind of a regret now. I, I wish, you know, uh, I had a better keyboard background because I spent a lot of time practicing marimba in my undergrad because of yeah. that. But no, it was just drum corps. And in fact, I did not go to music school first. Mm -hmm. I actually did an English degree and was in Asia studying. I came to Korea to learn Korean because I'd never been to Korea. Uh, every summer I was doing drum corps, so I never was able to come. So after I graduated from college, I came. And then uh, I was teaching in Japan actually in Korea and Japan. And then I decided to go to music school later. So I actually didn't have private instruction until I came to college. When I was in high school in Toronto, there was a, the band director uh, at my high school, he encouraged me to go see a concert by Nexus. Mm. And uh, it happened to be a fully improvised concert. Yeah. And at the time, I, I knew that they were famous. And I just remember thinking, this is not, you know, something I'm interested in at the time. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Ironically, because later, I went to study in Toronto with Nexus, uh, with uh, Russell Hartenberger and then Robin Engelman. And yeah. you know, I wish I could have seen that concert again. But, you know, at the time, I couldn't appreciate it. I was more into, you know, rudimental chops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> actually i actually did take a lesson with the toronto symphony timpanist at the time i recall now and the same thing i was not impressed <laughs> 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 and then because you know he was he was trying to take tell me to do scales etc and i wanted to see you know how fast his paradiddles were or something like that. How fast he could play or whatever. And yeah. <laughs> it turns out he had been in drum corps as well. Uh, but, you know, and, and later I actually played uh, guest with the Toronto Symphony many times. And, you know, I, 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 he studied with Hinger. And, you know, I was really, I came to appreciate all that stuff. But at the, yeah. as a kid, I was just not into it. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's funny how, how that all uh, came full circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, those... I don't know how long, I think, I feel like at some point I saw a Nexus, like one of the, either, I don't know if it was a full concert or if it was like a second half. And I, I mean, I, I would be, I, I'm pretty sure I saw like one of the first times I saw him, I think I was in the same kind of headspace, like, ah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. now I'd be like, all right, cool. But yeah, back then, yeah, I, I, there, I know the there, feeling. There is a uh, video actually of them playing in Korea. In 1984, it's on YouTube and they're doing, they brought an incredible amount of instruments. It's amazing the amount of instruments that they brought. Yeah. So it's a full stage and it's actually where I perform now. Actually, our, we don't perform there much anymore, but at this Sejong uh, Cultural Center where we have rehearsal facilities, it's a huge theater and the stage is just full. And there's a video of them on YouTube from that concert 
where they do this improv and it's amazing. I, I watch that and I think, man, you know, I wish I had a video of when I saw them because it must have been incredible. But here I was, you know, I was just bored. But, you know, in this, check it out. You have, you know, Bob Becker starts going off on the tabla in the middle. Yeah. And, you know, they it's, it's great because they have all these fan, fantastic instruments. And then suddenly they'll just, uh, there's a lot of humor involved as well. Um, uh, highly recommend it. Yeah, look them up on, on, on YouTube. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I will for sure. When you are doing so, when you're doing your original undergrad, your music output is drum corps. Like that's that's what yeah. you're doing. Yeah, okay. I was just totally into that. I was, I was even though I was studying in Canada, I was I was uh, I marched. Well, I went to school in the states as well, just for that. Uh, you know, I was I was at UMass Amherst because of Tom Hannum, who was a mm -hmm. music guy in the scene. And I was a member of the Crusaders in Boston, and then later in Indiana, the Star of Indiana. Came back to Canada to go to school because, uh, well, one, when I was at UMass, it was just hard to study. We were just drumming all the time. There's like real, uh, I, you know, some of my colleagues at that time were uh, Colin McNutt, who is now a super famous uh, arranger and uh, uh, sort of drum guru in the in that world. Uh, at that time, you know, that's all we did. So once I aged out of drum car, I came back to Canada and I, I, I did the degree. I thought I would go to law school. My mother, <laughs> Korean moms, they want you to be a doctor or a lawyer. Korean immigrants, you know, sure. second generation kids are really uh, pushed academically. And so at the time, I thought that I would do that. So I thought if I went to uh, Asia, you know, got some language experience, some life experience that would help me get into law school. And uh, my brother became a lawyer actually <laughs> when I was in Asia learning Japanese. And he said, uh, man, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. And he's no longer, he went into business. After, he was in corporate law and then he, he went into business and he was he's very successful and happy. But and he was like, you know, this doesn't suit you. And at the time I was fully, you know, involved in teaching drum corps in Japan. And I was having the time of my life. It was so fun. The Blue Devils staff were teaching the drum corps where I was uh, teaching in Tokyo. They're still there. This is, you know, 20 years later, longer actually. It dawned on me that, okay, I really think I can do this. But at the time, you know, like I said, you know, I was not so inspired when I saw Nexus or, you know, took a lesson, one lesson with the Toronto Symphony uh, timpanist. But teaching in Asia, I realized that, oh, there's plenty of jobs. You just got to go to where the work is. And that may be in another country. And so then I sort of was inspired to go back to go to music school. And then, you know, I discovered, wow, the marimba. And <laughs> that took me years to try to figure out wait so what age do you start your your music studies like, like officially and 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 what's that i was 27 27 okay i was a freshman with 19 year old kids <laughs> kids like learn. you're like literally kids yeah trying mm -hmm. to learn four mallets and uh of course i had took a little piano but you know i was right. not a good reader and you know 
I was literally, I remember, you know, my first day at the University of Toronto, we're there and I, you know, I, I was not well aware of Nexus as far as, you know, their whole, uh, their whole uh, career, but I knew that they were famous. And here I was in a, in a meeting with Russell Hartenberger and you know, he goes around the room and he's asking everybody, so what have you, what kind of repertoire have you played? And people are saying, you know, oh, I've played, you know, Bach violin sonatas and Keiko Abe pieces. And I'm madly writing this down thinking, <laughs> oh man, if they find out that I don't know these pieces, I'm going to get cut. <laughs> and I literally, and he, when he got to me, I said, well, I have not played much marimba which was an understatement. I said, but I, you know, I was into rudimental drumming and he was like, he loves rudiment, you know, Robin passed. He, he was really into rudimental drumming, uh, you know, colonial uh, um, fife and drum uh, history even. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't thinking, oh, he, can, he can't play the keyboards. He was just, oh, tell me about your background, etc. And he was really excited. So I thought, you know, okay, I'm going to go secretly learn all these pieces I was supposed to learn. So the first piece I tried to learn was Mexican dance number one. (laughs) And I didn't know how to hold the mallets. I remember searching around, what kind of, how do you, what books are there? You know, and the only book that I could find was Lee Howard Stevens' book. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, I mean, there, in fact, there may be more marimba format books now, but that was the Bible. Right. Yeah. And uh, but as you know, it's trying to read that is very it's very confusing. It's very confusing. It's taxing. There's a lot in there. Yeah, there's a lot of information. And in fact, part of my one of my classes that I'm doing for the percussion conservatory, I'm going to sort of talk about that as well, because I later went to the Stevens seminar where, you know, he really broke it down and I was, you know, just blown away uh well i heard his cd that first year in in toronto and i thought i gotta find this guy and then Mm -hmm. i later found out that he uh, had a seminar and i went and and that was a game changer for me it was a trial by fire and you know the one thing that i had going for me was because i could i was a snare drummer in in drum corps you know that Mm -hmm. i had i could figure out things technically it just took me you know time and you know in drum corps I learned to work really hard. So I was there. I was, I was always the last guy there at night. It took me a few years to catch up, but being an older student, you have kind of a desperation, you know, yeah. uh, cause you're, you're on limited time. So I was, I was highly motivated and I actually graduated in three years. My, at the time I thought, okay, I had to get into a good grad school and, it was a big relief when I finally was able to uh, go to study uh, in uh, America with Michael Bird at Northwestern. I'm just, I'm trying to imagine you like trying to figure out Mexican dances first off. And then like, and it, I mean, it's, yeah, that, I mean, that piece is wildly hard and, and hard to be accurate. in. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh no, I mean, I tried for weeks and then I finally gave up because I, I finally realized, you know, and I, I was studying, uh, I took some lessons with um, 
Beverly Johnston, mm-hmm. uh, a uh, prominent Canadian marimbas. And, uh, you know, she, she understood where I was and she had me play, you know, much more uh, suitable repertoire. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I realized later that, okay, you know, everybody has their, their different talents or, and things that they can offer. And uh, in fact, I remember asking Russell at the time, I was, went, you know, later that year when I got more comfortable, I was like, why did you accept me? He goes, well, you have life experience and, you know, you could really play the snare drum. So you can figure the rest out. And, you know, I didn't realize that that was, that, that, that happens in music school, that people come from different backgrounds and you didn't have to be all at the same level on each instrument. And that's the, thing I love about percussion is the variety and, you know, everybody brings something to the table. And as a section leader in my orchestra, you know, I try to let people uh, in my section, you know, shine and and do the things that they like to do. I need to backtrack a sec though, because when you are, after you finish undergrad in literature, Mm -hmm. you go, you go to Asia, right? Right. And your and to and what your intention is to do is to go to school or it's to teach like what's the what's the thing that gets you there? As a Korean American Canadian, it's sort of a rite of passage to go to Korea and learn Korean and experience okay. Korea. You know, at that time, uh, I didn't speak a word of Korean. Basically, I grew up uh, speaking English at home, and so my generation, you know, uh, our parents. They wanted to quickly uh, sort of uh, assimilate into American or Canadian culture. So mm-hmm. we grew up not speaking Korean at home. Whereas now it's much more globalized. And if you see, you know, uh, kids now, they're into, well, Korean pop culture, of course, is very popular now. So they'll, they'll be watching the TV shows, uh, you know, Squid Game or whatever. Right. And that was not or K-pop or something, you know, exactly. You know, I mean, it's crazy how many times I hear about, you know, I heard about BTS from American friends or uh, they were on Saturday Night Live. I couldn't believe it, you know, or, you know, I had uh, American friends ask me if I watched Squid Game. They had seen it before me. I'd never (laughs) didn't think to, you know, when I'm here, I'm constantly consuming American, you know, like. (laughs) <laughs> movies or you know net on netflix or, or or sports i'm watching you know different sports yeah so you know i wanted to go and experience my uh my you know parents culture and uh learning the language and then you know i ended up in japan studying japanese and you know those things you know give you a different perspective and you know i i thought that that would help me get into law school <laughs> basically. Mm, right sure but i was also interested in in, in in the cultures when you originally go is the is the reason to be there for like years or were you going for like to just kind of learn a little bit and then kind of figure out the next step yeah it was just going to be a year there mm-hmm. there's a there are plenty of uh sort of immersion language courses here that have uh you know Korean, uh, second generation Koreans come in, or, and now, of course, many different foreigners come because a lot of people are interested in Korean culture now. But, uh, you know, and you come and, you know, you, you take four hours of classes a day in Korean, and then, you know, you just um, learn the culture uh, 
hanging out, having fun. You know, it was it was a great time because once you're finished school uh, and you're in between, you know, career or grad school and your undergrad, you know, it was kind of a party, to be honest. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, I would make money on the side teaching English. You know, you, there's a lot of English is always in demand here. And you can you can do very well just teaching English, mm. which I did. But, uh, you know, that was never, even though I studied English literature, kids here were into grammar because they need to hear education uh, is very uh, important. And getting into college and, you know, the different place, the different uh, exams that they have, like, you know, the uh, this, the Korean version of the SAT is a huge deal. Mm -hmm. And I realized teaching English here that uh, they knew more gr English grammar than I did. <laughs> I studied literature, but not grammar. So yeah. I ended up transitioning to teaching drum corps. There happened to be some drum corps here. And then, you know, in Japan, it's really taken off. Uh, and then I ended up going to Japan. When you get there, are you are you playing at all, or are you like like in a way? Are you done with the music thing, and now we're, I'm in a new phase of my life for a while? Yeah, that was the thing with you know drum corps. You, once you age out, that's it, and you teach. So I was yeah. already coaching. Uh, I was I would go on tours in the summers with the Boston Crusaders, and I was teaching them. And then I ended up doing that with different groups here in Japan. But I was not playing. I was mm -hmm. just coaching it. You know, of course, you know, you keep your chops up and, you know, uh, but, you know, the, I thought that that was the end of it. And so to to go back to music and to discover, you know, the marimba, for example, and to start to go down that path of having to do recitals and juries uh, yeah. was super challenging and super exciting. Did you find that you were able to pick up the languages quickly or was that also a massive change to try to get acclimated to Korean and Japanese? I thought it was quite easy. I mean, I say that I didn't speak a lick of Korean. I spoke a little, mm -hmm. and, okay. but I did start literally at level one in the language program. There's six levels that, and they have 10 week courses. Um, so you're literally, I started literally with people who had never speak it, spoken Korean before. So, mm -hmm. Once you're in a program like that, where it's four hours a day and you're living in that country, it's really hard to not learn the language. <laughs> and, you know, I learned that, oh, okay. When, you know, they asked me in Japan to come and, and, and teach, I thought, okay, well, if you put me in this, in a, in a, in a language program, uh, I'd be happy to do it. And so Japanese and Korean are similar grammatically and uh, they're, even you know words that are the same so it wasn't that hard but uh you know you have to live there and be immersed and i think anybody who would come and take one of these immersion programs could learn no problem yeah so it, it was well, a lot of just having fun and hanging out and learning by uh just experience yeah yeah what's the difference between in the the written styles with those two Oh, uh, good, good question. A lot of Asian languages are derived from Chinese. Mm -hmm. There's roots there. So in Japanese, you have three alphabets, mm. which is really frustrating. <laughs> <to me. laughs> 
they have the ja- the Chinese characters, mm-hmm. and you know, there's I don't know how many. Uh, at the time, I remember a college student in Korea w- had to know maybe two thousand different Chinese characters. Oh wow! The Japanese know much more because they use much more of the they call it kanji, and of course the Chinese they they know I don't even know maybe it's ten thousand or more. Um, but now Korean has evolved to they just use the phonetic uh, alphabet. So the, for example, you know, in American, in English, sorry, we have 26 letters. Right. In Korea, you have a Korean, you have a similar system where it's just consonants and vowels. And you can learn that in one day. In Japanese, you have that. It's called hiragana. And then mm-hmm. you have, they call it's, uh, there's another uh, alphabet, katakana, which they have exclusively, not exclusively, but they, they developed it for foreign words okay. for some reason. And then they have the kanji, which is the Chinese character. So there's three alphabets. It's just, that was, I, when I realized what I was trying to learn, you know, it just, it boggled my mind. Why would you have alphabets? <laughs> but uh and is there an is there an expectation in Japan to that you have to know all three? Oh yeah, if you're a student, you have to yeah. So okay. I was here. I was. I remember. I was in a I was in a class with older adults, mm-hmm. and some of them were Chinese, and they could learn so much quicker because they knew the Chinese uh, uh, roots, so mm-hmm. they could guess words. Whereas me, yeah. I'm trying to figure out, and you know. These Chinese characters, it's like hieroglyphics. There are characters that look, um, for example, a person. Mm-hmm. It derived from a picture of a person, but now, you know, it's, it, it evolved. So it's just like these the two lines, whereas, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, a stick man or something in, uh-huh. in, in a previous, uh, you know, iteration. So they know all these these characters and they could guess so Mm -hmm. it's it's not easy that takes a lot of work and so I literally did a semester of that and then I thought okay that's and well actually I decided to go to music school and then so I left so if I'm just trying to kind of picture this now so is is there a in in these languages is there like a like a like a like maybe you were you were doing doing the and this is not going to make any sense on an audio podcast but like you're doing kind of like the stick man and that's maybe like the root. And then if there's other markings exactly. on it, that's means other or more exactly. elaborate things. Exactly. You add okay. water, you can add fire. You know, there's so many different uh, uh, characters and their yeah. combinations. And mm-hmm. sometimes you can deduce from just the combination. For example, there's like a, what looks like a, a door and then a person. Mm-hmm. you know and that's a door for example uh-huh and you know and, and so sometimes it's really intuitive mm-hmm. and sometimes it's completely not <laughs> and, and it just gets more and more complicated yeah i prefer you know just the phonetic <laughs> the sure word, you know and like you know when you're studying european languages and you have the feminine and masculine mm-hmm. uh, versions and for me i just it always blew my mind why would you do that <laughs> yeah yeah why yeah. would you make it so hard right and they're like how many 
and and you they would be like o u g h how many how many different ways does that sound like i'm supposed yeah. to know all those <laughs> you know i grew up in canada so we had french and i always yeah. wanted to learn french but it, i always found it impossible i was terrible at it you're like well i guess i'm just not going to montreal or quebec city or anything <laughs> uh yeah and you know asian languages um my daughter she's studying chinese right now mm-hmm. she's years old and so they just soak it up yeah of course and I really, you know it's just like with music you know some of these things you just have to start really really damn early <laughs> yeah yes absolutely but is there a point when you're in when you're in japan it hits you like no actually like the music thing i this is actually what i want to do like i need to stop thinking about something else it's actually a funny story. I was, we were on our way to the championships uh, in a van. Mm-hmm. Jeff Lee, who used to be the front ensemble instructor for the Blue Devils. He was mm-hmm. there, you know, and uh, we're in a van and, you know, I, I would watch him and, you know, he, they, the group that we taught together, they were, they had jazz arrangements and he would, I remember watching, you know, I was, in charge of the battery and he would he had writ, written all these complex jazz arrangements for the keyboards i remember listening to him coaching them and you know he could hear wrong notes in in you know whatever jazz chords and i thought man that's i asked i remember asking him i was like when you were young you know you must have started really early to get that kind of training and he goes you know i'll be honest with you he's like when i went to music school I was not trained in that at all. And it blew me away. I thought, are you serious? He said, yeah, there's plenty of music schools where you can go and, you know, that's, you learn it there. He's like, I happened to go to a great teacher. He studied with Steve Schick Mm. early in his career at, I believe it was in New Mexico. I think that's right. Yeah, he said that you know he he was also a drum corps guy. He he played timpani, I think, in the Santa Clara Vanguard, and he was like, you know, I ended up studying with this great teacher, and you know, he said I had to work really hard, you know, practice six eight hours a day for four years, uh, but you can learn all this stuff in music school, you know, and that's it was kind of an aha moment for me, and I thought. Oh, really? I could still go to music school? I could go learn this? You know, I was so naive. If a kid came to me now, not kid, but an adult, a 20, mid-20s adult came to me and said, I want to go to music school, you know, and especially if they said, I want to be, you know, I want to play an orchestra, I'd be like, forget it. It's too late. <laughs> but because there was nobody telling me, you know, that it Don't was impossible. Once yeah. I had that go ahead, I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. And I was just, I remember, you know, I'll never forget the first time when I was at, when I arrived in Toronto, I saw somebody playing rhythm song on Rimba mm-hmm. and I thought, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and now, you know, that's not even played, you know, by high school kids even in Texas or wherever or in Korea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a, that's a good, like very impressive looking piece. And then you start playing, and it and it's. I mean, it's still great, but you start playing. You're like, oh, it's like these patterns, and yeah. Once I get that, 
And, you know, it, it, it was just that I, I always knew I, I learned uh, what was appropriate at the right time. You know, right. I, I was really into Keiko Abe, you know, as a freshman, you know, I was playing some of her pieces and they were popular back then. Your musical taste as you grow as a musician and you, and then you, know, you want to hear more uh, complex music or more mm -hmm. uh, lucky that Toronto, the program in Toronto allowed you to explore and sort of go through that whole um, process on your own. For example, there are other schools where you have real, well, for example, when I went to um, Northwestern, you know, kids were already more advanced at the undergraduate level. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the things that they were attacking as a freshman were completely different than uh, what was happening in Toronto, for example. When you go to study with Mike Burrett at Northwestern, are you thinking that that you will go, that you're going to go for an orchestra job at this point, or do you go... I'm just I'm just going because I want to study with Mike Burrett. Like, what's the, what's your plan? I was on a marimba mission for years, mm. for three years in Toronto, and at, I went to the seminar, the Lee Stevens seminar, and I met Michael Burrett, Shi E Wu, and mm -hmm. I was thinking, you know, okay, I got to go study with them. Yeah, you know, I was just so impressed, and you know, uh, I ended up going to Northwestern. I had never thought about playing in an orchestra. Still. You know, it was still, Toronto was not really uh, orchestrally uh, oriented at the time, the program. And Northwestern wasn't really at the time. At the time, uh, when I was a grad student, Will James, he was a freshman. Mm. He was just learning, you know, all that stuff also. And although there were people there who were into orchestral repertoire and were going to, you know, famous uh, summer music festivals for, you know, orchestral players, uh, the general program then was just a total, fully uh, rounded education. So, you know, the marimba literature, solo literature, the orchestra repertoire, um, um, percussion ensemble was huge. So at the time, I thought I actually was trying to be a teacher. I thought I would go and, you know, at the time there, the his grad students uh, the DMAs were always getting jobs. And I yeah. think, you know, he's still going strong at Eastman with that. Yeah. And so I was into that, into that world. I thought, okay, I need to go get my DMA and, and, and I could, you know, because I had some drum corps background, you know, I could teach somewhere at a college somewhere, uh, you know, maybe in the middle of nowhere at first and then work my way up. And uh, it wasn't until uh, Rutgers when um, she e brought uh, Alan Abel on faculty that my life changed. And I realized, oh, you know, this is something I can do. You know, I it was just a mystery at that time. And mm -hmm. Temple, you know, used to be, you know, Temple at that time, Temple guys were always winning. Yeah. And you know, I didn't even think to audition. But Mr. Abel just happened to come on faculty and she, uh, I don't know if you know her, you know, she's a force of nature. And yeah. She was so driven at the time. And she had kids coming from all over the country and uh, to study with her. And she thought, okay, what do I do next for them? And she's like, oh, I'm going to bring in the guru, you know, Alan yeah. Abel, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> and I remember 
uh, she she said that oh, I'm going to get on an able or try to. And we were like, oh, good luck. You know, why would he? You know, <laughs> he's so busy at Temple and you know, etc. And of course, he said no. He's too busy. But she wouldn't take no for an answer. She just kept pugging him, and he finally came. And so he accepted one student at that time, and I I happened to be the student. You know, so. Wow. And I was just at the right place at the right time. And it was, you know, at, at my development, you know, it was the right place to be. And, and you know, I, I got to see all the guys in the temple studio who were winning jobs, you know, uh, at the time. Uh, one guy, uh, Adrian Stefanescu, he went to Hong Kong. He became the principal there. Another, uh, Jeremy Branson, he's now in the Pittsburgh Symphony associate principal so I got to see these guys you know uh go uh, in doing their mock auditions and winning and, and and uh I started to learn that you know okay I can do this and yeah it was just literally uh being in the right place at the right time for me yeah when you're studying with Bert and then when you head over to study with Shi'i I mean were you even thinking like do I like, I mean, were you thinking like, oh, I understand like, you know, you, you, the Alan, that you make the Alan Abel connection and then that changes. Was, was your taste in, in percussion music, like the marimba stuff? Like I'm doing oh, the yeah. marimba stuff. I was all about, you know, I was, I was playing Mirage. I was playing, uh, awesome. you know, uh, variations on lost stuff. I was doing that all out. And my other, there was two other master students, one from Sweden named Johan Bridger, an incredible marimba soloist. He's still going strong in Sweden. You can find him on YouTube. He has, his Paganini uh, Caprice is, you know, I don't know how many, it's like 200,000 views or something maybe. Mm. Uh, he's incredible. And, you know, everybody was playing, you know, the velocities and, you know, all that stuff. And I was trying to tackle all those, mm -hmm. you know, mountains. Uh, the other uh, master student was Yi Jin Fang from uh, oh, UBA, I think, right now, right? On UBA, yeah. We're, you know, we're thinking about marimba competitions and trying to, you know, and that's why I, I continued to go uh, at, to study with Shi'i because it was the same goal. And, you know, mm -hmm. I got to Rutgers and freshmen were playing Merlin, et cetera, you know, and I'm, right. <laughs> you know, trying to play, you know, Schwatner, Rhythmic Caprice, you name it. You know, I was really yeah, yeah. into that stuff. But again, just like I spoke with, uh, I spoke about with Rhythm Song and Keiko Abe, you know, you get there and then you look to the next thing. Right. And so, you know, orchestra is like the ultimate instrument, you know, the ultimate, you know, the, the, the masterworks there, you know, are endless. You know, I, of course, I still love and I, I coach my students and I have some very fine, uh, you know, in, in, in Asia, in Korea, we have, you know, plenty of marimbas who play mm -hmm. <laughs> all the heavy literature, you know. So I kind of uh, uh, have that background, which helps me to, to coach them. Um, I had a couple of students go to the Stuttgart competition recently, uh, last, last fall, and playing the big pieces, Moajou and you name it. Um, um, so I kind of get uh, my fix with the, through them. Yeah. But uh, I don't play that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. When you start working with Alan, do you say, I want to, like, you interact with him and you're like, 
I want to do this. And, or does he, what does he see? And he's like, all right, this is, here's what you need to work on. Here's what needs to change. Like, this is the mindset. Was there kind of like a whole list of like, if you want this, here's the, here's, here's how we do it. Oh yeah. No, he, he was very systematic and, and you mm-hmm. know, he'd been doing it for decades and he, you know, had so many students win jobs all over. And mm-hmm. so first off, if you're studying with him, it's not a question of, you know, are you, you're already, he only taught grad students. Mm-hmm. So you're already motivated to win a job. Uh, right. you're, all, you're already going to him because you want to win an orchestra job. Right. Um, although I was an exception in a way because I was coming to him from Rutgers and, and uh, at the time I was not motivated to do that, but mm-hmm. I soon became motivated because I saw what was happening. And so you go to him and, he hands you all of this music. You basically have to, in your two years with him, uh, go through all the repertoire, you know, that's kind of expected. And so, for example, snare drum, mm-hmm. even though I was a snare drummer from the beginning as a rudimental drummer, you know, his system of how he teaches orchestral snare drum, uh, whether it's repertoire, you know, the, the, the going through the different repertoire and the techniques, um, it's super organized and mm-hmm. uh, it's basically um, laid out for you. Of course, he was very open to new ideas and evolving, but mm-hmm. he had this base of, you know, this is the program and, you know, you just got to go through that program. And which I really, really enjoyed because that's how I was used to learning in uh, drum corps, mm-hmm. you know, you go through the fundamentals and you get to the next step and the next step and the next step. And, you know, um, that's why I really took to Stevens, uh, his approach to the marimba. He, he mm-hmm. broke it all down and, and, and you realized, okay, this is how you play the hardest literature, you, you know, right. Uh, whether it's the building blocks technically or, or even musically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that was what I always looked for and, and, and with two teachers. And that's what I try to bring to my students, you know, trying to, to, to break it all down so that it's understandable from a fundamental foundation first. Well, when you say that you were given like this, this, like, let's say snare. So if he was giving you all the snare music that you had to know, was there an order or was it like, this is the amount, here's all the stuff you need to know. Or would he actually have like, start with this piece. It's going to teach you this. This is what you need to know. Here's the. He didn't actually. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't break it down like that. I mean, we all know Scheherazade, you know, is is probably the first. Uh, it's going to be the, the go to first piece, for example. And then, you know, you have the different excerpts. So yeah. going through and, you know, guys are constantly in that program, even from the beginning when they start hit the ground running and they're, they're taking auditions right away. They're already, they already mostly come from a program where they've already done this and he's honing them in, in they, they may have come from a different system. He's, he's sort of tweaking their, their audition uh, presentation or prep. So I, you know, just saw right away, we're doing a rep class and mocks. Okay. You know, Scheherazade, you know, you got to have that. I know, of course, I already knew Scheherazade having to, he would approach just, you'd bring repertoire to him and then he would, you know, 
give you the technical foundation behind it. But so he would, he didn't necessarily assign you uh, the rep, but you were, you know, everybody was self-motivated with that as well. In terms of, aside from that part, what was some of the things that he was telling you about the auditions and the mental headspace you needed to be in? What were some of the things that he was letting you know about that part of it? Okay, for example, he would have you have several versions of whatever excerpt. Mm -hmm. For example, Scheherazade, the beginning, uh, third movement, letter D, you know, he would say that, okay, you could play the straight version. You could play the sort of hairpin version, which was at the time he, I remember he, he would, I think he said, oh, this is done more in New York, for example, or in Cleveland, they did this, you know, there was different traditions. Things have become more internationalized now, actually, even in the time since I studied with him, the 20 years since, because of the internet used to be, you know, like in Germany, you would play Scheherzad, letter D, single stroked. Mm. So he would say, you know, have these different versions and be able to perform them and be ready to adjust to a conductor, to a panel when they ask you to do something differently. So the flexibility was really, really key for him. That was a big thing. Yeah. And, uh, like I like I told you about my conductor you know right. he told me about this version of William Tell and literally the first rehearsal it came up <laughs> and I'm still convinced that that was a big reason why later you know I was uh, promoted because I had that understanding you know for example on cymbals he would mm -hmm. talk about okay when you're playing French repertoire this is the kind of crash you may want mm -hmm. not to mention the cymbals of course sure yeah but, you know, to get a much more uh, transparent sound, you know, or if, if it's Germanic music, you know, this kind of darker quality, this is the kind of crash, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, you know, he, he just widens your perspective on the different instruments, but also gives you sort of an insight on to, okay, if this audition is here, this conductor or this section, this is sort of their tradition. And so you kind of want to adjust yeah, that was a that was a big part of it and that I realized um and still to this day, you know, I have students taking auditions for for example, they this was just the recent uh recently they were doing all these festival auditions whether it's mm -hmm. you know, the Music Academy of the West or 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 Aspen or Pacific Music Festival or Schleswig-Holstein. You know, I always have students going to Schleswig-Holstein and you know, the judge is a German. Mhm. Mm uh, timpanist Guido uh, from Munich, Phil. So I know that he likes flannel mallets and this sound on this, on Beethoven or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. Where in America, you know, when my students uh, auditioning for Aspen, for example, and if it's Dave Herbert, uh, I know David Herbert would prefer these kind of mallets. And, you know, in fact, Dave Herbert has played with us in the Soul Philharmonic. We have a, uh, actually a vacancy our principal timpani position is open so we've had a lot of the big players come in from both europe and america and i always have them do master classes and and mm -hmm. uh, for me uh, it's been fascinating to see the differences and you know i try to incorporate that in how i teach my students and so they get sort of a wider perspective yeah, that that must that's actually really like you're and i, I know you're learning a ton i'm sure from all of them as well 
it's so much fun. And, and yeah. you know, Seoul is amazing that way because now everybody comes through Seoul. There's all the orchestras come here uh, mm-hmm. and, and play concerts. There's multiple concert halls in Seoul. So they're always coming on tour and we're always having master classes. And, you know, I have students going to, you know, I've sent students to Temple, to Curtis, to, you know, different music schools all over. Uh, and of course, in Europe as well. So, you know, as a teacher, I want to have the tools and, and, and the knowledge that I can uh, help them prepare for, uh, you know, whatever path they may choose, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in America. You, it's interesting because when you're telling me about the ways that that Alan Abel is having you think about some of this stuff, it's also very much he's clearly going on just his life, his life experience. Like he, he obviously knows everybody. <laughs> like, so it's like, there's another belt and benefit we're studying with him. No, exactly. Exactly. And you know, these are all things that evolved from the different halls. The Cleveland orchestra has a very, uh, a different approach because their hall was, is so live. So mm-hmm. you can play super quiet from my understanding mm-hmm. and be still be, you know, very well heard. Whereas at the time uh, when Mr. Abel was in the Philadelphia Orchestra, the Academy of Music in Philadelphia, the hall, you really had to play out. Um, and so there's a total different approach, whether it's, you know, the heavy hanger timpani mallets mm-hmm. or the big steel pipe bass drum mallets to get more fundamental um, or, you know, playing denser rolls on the snare drum so using utilizing more arm to play higher speed sort of rhythmic skeletons to your rolls mm-hmm. to fill the sound because it wasn't resonant for example and you know you see that in, in in europe they play very uh differently their snare drum for example because the halls you know we just played my orchestra we just played the music for Rhine in uh vienna this past fall and you know it's amazing how small the stage is they, they sit down playing the snare drum because it's small. I don't, that may not be the reason, but you know, you can d- easily deduce, okay, here, you don't have to fill in your snare drum roll. You're just, you can play a slow roll and it sounds smooth in the hall. Yeah. Uh, so it depends on the acoustics. So those were things that uh, Mr. Abel uh, was able to uh, illuminate. And, you know, you, you get that with, of course, all the different great, teachers you know another thing mr abel you you asked about the the mental aspect i remember a big thing that was a revelation to me with him was you know using more arm using more bigger muscles to play smaller passages whether it's bolero or you know instead of using small sticks using heavier sticks Mm -hmm. you know his his snare drum sticks he has two uh, different sticks out of Reamer uh, drummers uh, service in Pittsburgh to Abel models. And they were based off marching sticks. Mr. Abel was a rudimental snare drum champion when he was a, a, a student. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that uh, stick is much bigger than, for example, what you may see uh, someone use in a European orchestra. Yeah. Um, yeah, just uh, so many things that go uh, into the different styles and, and uh, 
that go into executing the different repertoire that you know he can illuminate or he did illuminate. He he passed away obviously uh, during COVID. All right, Ed, finish out with random ass questions. First question, standard one I open with, which is an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. This has always bugged me, and that is people thinking that, you know, oh, drum corps or the marching, you know, percussion uh, is not compatible with playing orchestral music or with playing, uh, you know, concert percussion. In fact, many of the orchestral famous players were rudimental drummers. Alan Abel, as I mentioned, you know, he, he was a rudimental champion so many times as a kid that they had to make his own, his own category in the competition because <laughs> he would always win. Floyd Duff was a rudimental, you know, snare drum, uh, snare drummer, different people in orchestras now, uh, whether it's, uh, I know that uh, Chris Lamb was in a drum corps. Uh, Tom Sherwood in Cleveland Orchestra, he was in a drum corps. You know, there are many people who uh, come from that background and it translates into the orchestral world. You just have to, I think the difference is just going to the right teachers. You know, sure. you can you can go to any school and learn how to do something wrong or yeah. not necessarily wrong, but, you know, uh, differently in a way that some people may think is not... Uh, conducive to whatever musicality in the orchestral world. I always find that that outlook is sort of just close-minded because there's so much amazing playing, especially now the level is ridiculous. I'm such a big fan of DCI and I see the kids now uh, and the level of, of, of playing, whether it's in the front ensemble or in the battery and the touch required to play what they do. It's incredible. Yeah. And any number of them with the num the amount of work that they put in to get to that level, they could all be orchestral players if they wanted, if they went to the school. Right. Right. Um, but you know, oftentimes they just go to this school because they're into that. And then it sort of leads them down to a different path. I proudly you know <laughs> wear that badge of you know this is what I did for many of my years and and uh, it has always helped me as a as a orchestral percussionist and I think that uh, uh, it's a really good uh, uh, way for a percussionist to get their start and their fundamentals I am wondering is is some of the pushback in these cases based on comes from the orchestra side, the more established side, looking at like the upstarts or however, and just being like, well, you're doing that thing, like whatever. That's not the, that's not the big deal. We're the big deal. Is that some of this too? That's a good question. Well, of course, drum corps, back in the day, of course, the technique was uh, more... Militaristic, I would, would probably be. Yeah, the militaristic. Uh, you know, the, if you listen to the front ensembles now and they're mic'd, they're, mm -hmm. they play with such touch and there's so much yeah. more uh, nuance there compared to decades ago where, you know, you're playing on a kilo on xylo and you have to project, 
So they're yeah. playing much bigger. Right. So yes, I do get that. The 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 um, chops involved, you know, will always serve you in whatever. Mm-hmm. You just have to, you know, know how to sort of tweak it to to whatever the situation is. So I think there's that. There's the evolution of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't know. Is there snobbiness involved? Maybe. Mm. But uh, you know, you can never get rid of that. But you know, I do always try to encourage students to look into that. You know, if I have a student that's that age, I, I, I would always recommend that they do drum corps. You'll never work harder. Right. And you'll you will learn how to fix things. Next question I want to ask is. And it's, I'm trying to think of the right way to ask this, but I, and I'll, I'll just come out with it. You know, what What are the ways that you think of issues of inclusion, diversity, and equity in your current position, throughout your life, how you've existed in all these different worlds? What, what things do you think about in those spaces? Oh, that's a great question. I was always somewhat of an outsider. You know, I'm a, I, I was a you know, I'm Canadian and in Canada, we have a multicultural sort of policy where you're encouraged to keep your cultural identity. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, America is a melting pot where everybody's American and, and sort of assimilates. Uh, and in Korea, although I'm Korean, as soon as I speak, they can hear my, you know, English, you know, uh, accent in my Korean. I've always felt it would, it's important to be inclusive just from that aspect, you know, like here I was in drum corps, I was the only Korean guy. And uh, I've never felt, in, in, in my experience, I've always had uh, positive experiences. How do I incorporate that into my world? I'm not, well, for example, gender wise, in Korea, there are more female percussionists than male, just because in the Confucian sort of society, the males are encouraged by their parents to pursue business or whatever. Uh, and, and females are more encouraged to pursue the arts. So mm-hmm. you'll see string sections in Korean orchestras where the majority are female. You'll see a bass contrabass section where it's all women. Uh, so it's a different sort of perspective here. Whereas of course in Vienna, it's totally different it's all right. guys austrian or for the most part yeah. here we have such a s- different sort of uh combination whether it's the female to male ratio uh we have people studying in america or europe um so there it's it's i think a little more inclusive and i as a percussionist try to you know i'm more open to 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 the other uh side being european for me. I'm not sure if that's really addressing your question, but that's been sort of my perspective. And uh, so, for example, as a principal percussionist, I mean, I often hire female percussionists. I don't Mm -hmm. actually think about it as something being uh, where I'm trying to be inclusive. I'm just hiring the best players, and there are many fine female percussionists here as well. 
you you have been answering the question so i or at least the, what i was thinking so but i the one one other part i want to ask you about is 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 what's it like to play what sounds like if you're if you're saying that it's mostly a masterworks style orchestra then that would naturally mean that you're playing music of europe and maybe the us and and uh, and but i'm curious like is that what's what's that like kind of for the your audience i guess yes and i now i see especially in america there's a much more of an effort to be uh more inclusive with the repertoire whether yeah. it's uh gender wise or um even culturally yeah here of course we have uh, it's it's very much euro based mm -hmm. a lot of our conductors are european but we did have a for 10 years a korean female composer as our composer in residence her she's a korean composer based in germany unsuk chin mm, yeah she's quite she's quite uh uh famous now in the orchestra world and you know she was a disciple of Ligeti. Mm. She can write some fiendishly hard parts. And we did so many pieces uh, uh, through her uh, new music series. I think we, over 10 years, I think we must have done 40 new music concerts, just straight up, you know, the hardest repertoire. Uh, so we do have a, we did have a balance with that. And, you know, at, I don't know if she made an effort to, but there was often female uh, composers being represented. Um, but it's true that that was only four concerts a year. Uh, and then the rest of the time, um, I mean, we have female conductors, just like there are female, uh, many female uh, musicians here. There is, is male dominated, but uh, we had a, a Korean female uh, associate conductor Sung Xian, uh, Korean conductor who's now in Europe. Um, so that wasn't something that I necessarily thought of, but it was just always there. Um, but we have not had the sort of uh, effort like you see in America now to be uh, very inclusive uh, or make an effort specifically to try to uh, include a female um, composer's work, for example. So it'd be interesting to see how that evolves here. Yeah, actually, it's it's funny. It was, uh, I talked to uh, Rebecca, Rebecca Lloyd-Jones, who's a Steve Schick student. Yeah. And um, and she was doing, has been doing Unsuk Chin stuff. She, at like, at PASIC, and she studied a bunch of us. So that's, that's actually a name I was like, oh, it's like a recently familiar yeah. name. I actually listened to that podcast. I met her. We judged, we judged the competition together in Australia. Oh, so, nice. Uh, I was really interested to hear her interview, a great interview. And I know the piece she was talking about with Jin and Suk. I played that piece. It's, a, it's an electronic uh, uh, piece with percussion. I think if that's the one she's talking about. And I remember she mentioned, you know, the, the, the fivelets, the quintuplets. Yeah. Which it turns out, you know, having played a lot of Ligeti now, you know, we I realized that uh, Jin and Suk got it from her teacher Ligeti. It's, it was kind of fascinating to see that. Uh, yeah. Relationship. All right. Well, let's get to some other questions. Ed, what is the most impractical item of clothing you own? I don't know if it's impractical, 
my friends always uh, remark on it is I have Uggs. <laughs> <laughs> the boots? I don't have the sort of the, the, the big boots that everybody thinks of when they have Uggs. You know, I have the, the fur line slippers or the, 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 huh. the um, I have Birkenstocks with fur in them. You know, yeah. I am a, a comfort seeker when it comes to uh, the weather. Nice. <laughs> Growing up in Canada, you know, I am more sensitive to the cold. And, you know, in Canada, we would dress up more. Yeah. So people always find it funny that I'm wearing two jackets or, you know, my Uggs here uh, <laughs> first. And, you know, I, I get colder than others. Or I get warmer than others in the summer, yeah. you know, conversely. But uh, my uh, my friends always find it funny that I'm a, at my age, I'm wearing Uggs. <laughs> Gotcha. Hey, Tom Brady, he, he wore Uggs, so. He did, yeah. Right? <laughs> That's how I justify it. What's your biggest kitchen mess up? Cook a lot, but we had in my orchestra, we have a, one of my colleagues, a trumpet player from America, he, he loves baking. Mm. And so we once had a bake-off between some of uh, my colleagues, male colleagues, <laughs> and we were cooking. It was a, it was a cookie uh, bake-off. And I'd never cooked before or baked cookies before. Mm -hmm. So I'm following the recipe and I realized, my God, that's a lot of sugar. <laughs> I didn't realize how much sugar goes into a chocolate chip cookie. Uh -huh. I thought, I'm just going to take some out, of, take out some of the sugar, <laughs> you know, and make it less sweet. Yeah. And what I didn't do was uh, take out the similar portion of salt. <laughs> So and I was, of course, in a rush and I baked them and I rushed off to rehearsal and we had our little competition and I had like salty chocolate chip cookies <laughs> got me last place. And, uh, you know, I guess they could, there could be a good tasting salty chocolate chip cookie, but mine were not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing to me how much sugar goes into baked goods. Yeah. That is that is hilarious though that you're like, oh, clearly that's a misprint or something like that. <laughs> I just thought, you know, okay, let's if I take out a, a third of this, you know, surely you could if with this much sugar, you could still it'll still be super sweet. Yeah. Not not really. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. What's a, what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Well, recently, I love movies. Recently, uh, one of the, and the way I judge good movies are, do I want to see them again? Because mm, sure. we've seen so many movies over the years and, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's like, okay, I don't need to see it again. Yeah. But uh, I really enjoyed Dune. Oh, Yeah. Thought that was an amazing you know i love science fiction and you know i love you know all kinds of different movies dramas whatever but i thought this had a great combination of all of it you know whether it was the music the cinematography the story just the acting fabulous mm -hmm. and so by contrast you know this was kind of an epic adventure you know movie the eternals my god i did not like that movie Mm. And, you know, I, I love popcorn, you know, uh, action flick, but uh, 
I could not get into it. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I found more and more with the Marvel movies, it's hard for me to swallow. I, re- you know, I really like the beginning, the first uh, Iron like Man. Like Iron Man and stuff. and Yeah. But then more and more, it just started to get, you know, out of my uh, taste uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, wheelhouse. But yeah, Eternals, I, I did not like. I'm sorry. I know a lot of people <laughs> like old Marvel movies, but maybe I'm just getting old. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Well, you because of your English literature background, I, I'm like, I'm ready. I want to hear some about some of your favorite books. You know, yeah, it's it's always a thing because, you know, I was an English <laughs> lit major in my previous life. And, and now, yeah. you know, I list instead of reading, I listen to audiobooks. Oh, yeah. Or, 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 or you know, podcasts mostly, you know. Yeah. Or just like, you know, I'm an orchestral musician. So people are like, oh, what, you know, what are you listening to? I'm, I'm listening to the next piece that I'm playing. Right, you know? yes, exactly. I mean, that's work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I enjoy it, but it's like, you know, I, I, that's, that's, what's, that's what's in my, uh, that's what's in my ear. But, yeah. uh, you know, my favorite books, uh, you know, I was a big Salinger fan. Mm, okay. Ernie and Zooey is one of my all-time favorites. Uh, you know, um, just I loved his language. You know, his the, the vernacular plus. You know, he would he would his themes. Whether it's you know the existential sort of God uh, uh, seeking, angst-ridden youth. Uh, you know that hit uh, that really hit uh, home for me when I was a uh, a young a younger guy. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, I listened to Murakami's. Is it IQ eighty four? Oh yeah, yeah. I know. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I have. I know. Yes, I haven't. I haven't read it, but I, I'm, I'm aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a long book that I was like, okay, I'm not going to sit there and read whatever 400 pages, but I'll listen to it. Sure. And and uh, you know, I had. To, I used to really like Murakami back in the day, and so I, I re, it was a, it was a long time that I revisited his work. Mm-hmm. So that was fun, and you know, I think uh, audio books uh, having you know. Audible is really cool. You could just breeze through all these different, but I often find myself now um, gravitating towards nonfiction, you know, whether it's sports or politics. <laughs> That's always been, do you have any, I'm curious about this because you've been telling about audiobooks that are fiction. I've always found that I have a hard time remembering what happens in fiction audiobooks, but I'm, but nonfiction, I don't, I'm usually completely fine. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. You might be. You might be able to do more. I, I fiction was always a challenge to keep up with. It's true. There, there is that because you don't get back to it for a while, and then you turn on the audio, and you're in the middle, and you know you're in the middle of traffic driving, and you're concentrating, and then you're like, "What?" So then you have backtrack. backtrack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I realized that you know, and you know, when I was a student, you're really trying to. Ex- you're really trying to soak everything in and, 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 mm-hmm. and, you know, I would take notes because I had to write essays, you know, whereas here you have to just kind of let it go. And, and so it took a while to get used to that. And I also mm-hmm. listened to um, things a little bit faster. I listen oh, okay. to podcasts one point, you know, it just makes, I oftentimes find that, you know, it just, it's too slow. Now I have to go 1.5 speed or whatever. With a long book like that, the, the the Murakami, I find it's okay. It's not, you know, 
it's kind of more entertainment. Mm, than, sure. So. Well, what, what's been some of the nonfiction you've been reading? A lot of my time now is on, is on uh, podcasts, but mm. the last time I was listening to stuff on Audible uh, that were nonfiction, it was during the last administration. Oh, okay. Sure. And just what is going on? Sure. You know, yeah. and you know, when those books started coming out, I wanted to hear. Yeah from the different players involved. You know, yeah. I am American, but I'm also Canadian. And I was, you know, I had been gone for 20 years and things were different. Yeah. And I wanted to sort of see what was happening and yeah. Yeah. Without getting political here. Sure. <laughs> because of where you grew up and where you went to school, do you have a sports fandom or fandoms? Yes. Uh, you know, and obviously people may accuse me of being, you know, uh, you know, jumping on the bandwagon. But, you know, I was a Pats fan because New England Patriots, because when I was at UMass, we once played a New England Patriots uh, halftime show. Huh? <laughs> this is pretty Brady. This was back when Flutie was actually even. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is way back. And yeah. they're terrible. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have a lot of friends from Boston, you know, because mm -hmm. of uh, my drum corps affiliation. And those guys are diehard fans. So I would, yeah. and it was fun to watch, you know, Brady through his, his you know, epic career. I love basketball. Mm. Um, I was never a great basketball player. You know, I played in junior high, but I couldn't even make the high school team. But I'd always follow uh, basketball. That's the sport I follow the most. Mm. And... Uh, you know, rather than a particular team, I always follow, for me, I just enjoy when, when, when things are firing on all cylinders and it's a great team that's well coached, mm -hmm. whether it was, you know, the, the, the Warriors on their recent, you know, runs or yeah. um, um, the Spurs. I was a huge fan of the Spurs and that, you know, yeah. the team basketball and how beautiful they played, whether it was, you know, you know, the passing and the defense yeah uh, you know well you know and i was realizing where you live those games are on it's like you wake up and they're on right right exactly. like that's pretty sweet actually <laughs> uh, yeah no it is fun it, it's tough because sometimes like for example the super bowl last oh, that's yeah ago, we were in rehearsal so we couldn't we're literally during break whipping out our phones <laughs> Checking the score and, and yeah. you know watching, watching you know I managed to f watch the end, um, but you know what a great uh, what a great uh, matchup between uh, two great quarterbacks that was. A lot of times I end up just watching playoffs. Like yeah. I'll watch highlights on YouTube, you know of of the NBA. But then you know when the playoffs come, you know it's the best. I have to get up early and watch. Yeah, that's the best. <laughs> it's because it's every night and there's multiple games and it's just like it's wall to wall. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. And all the and all the best players are playing all the time. That's the other thing. That's yeah. Are you a big basketball fan or? I'm, I'm a, a big sports fan just in general. But yeah, I mean, I watch when the NBA. Like I, I, wa I will watch a few regular season games if it's like a big matchup or something. But once the playoffs start, I'm I'm like I'm all in. Like, I, I don't really have one anymore. Um, 
I was a, I was a, when I was growing up, I was both, I was a little bit of a Knicks and a, cause I grew up in New York, but I was, a, I was a fan of the New Jersey Nets when they were terrible. But when also they had some good teams with like when they, yeah, um, Kenny Anderson and Jawson Petrovich and some of those, and then Jason Kidd, but like that team went, you know, they're like, they're, they're in Brooklyn and they don't really have a fan base. Like yeah, that thing went downhill. Yeah. It did. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, the, the Nets, I remember when Vince Carter was there, you know, and he, yeah. he missed the shot that would have got them. Uh, I can't remember. Well, the, that was one that he was with the, the Raptors. Okay. You're right. Yeah. yeah. And then he went to, he went to the then he went to New Jersey soon after that. Yeah. But that was a big shot too. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, you know, where you live, because obviously that changes kind of where this next question goes, but like, do you, are there places that you still places you haven't traveled to that you still want to travel to knowing full well that you probably can go to a lot of places and it's not that big of a deal, I would assume. Right. Or it is a big deal, actually. It is a big deal. Like with our orchestra, we go on tours uh, Mm -hmm. every year, you know, except for during the pandemic. So we would go to Europe a lot. Mm-hmm. So we go to a lot of the main cities and that's always a real pleasure. You know, I love yeah. Europe. Of course, Southeast Asia is closer. You know, it's yeah. five hours to Hong Kong or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's still a hike. Japan yeah. is like an hour or two. Uh, you know, Beijing, Shanghai is two hours. So mm-hmm. they are relatively close. If I were to go travel, uh, I generally, I just go home. I go to see my folks in Canada gotcha. and and friends. So I get my fix when we go on tour and we were mm. just in, we were just in uh, Europe in the, in the fall. And that was amazing. You know, Austria, um, Amsterdam, uh, Germany. You just, because you brought up going back home to Canada, when you go, what's like the food that you or the restaurant you're like we're going by the like or your family already knows to maybe like have some of that at the house just so you're like you're good what's what do you what do you do for restaurants chinese food is a big one because mm-hmm. toronto chinese food is uh, i'm told amazing by chinese standards mm. but uh, it's what i grew up with and, and you know uh that kind of chinese food is not as common here in korea yeah so that's like first on the list but uh, rather than even restaurants, things like ketchup chips. Ketchup chips. Okay. Ketchup chips is very Canadian. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you got to have ketchup chips. Uh-huh. Uh, what else? Poutine. Poutine is more French Canadian. Okay. But uh, sure. yeah, no, I'll, I'll get some if I'm there. Uh-huh. Um, what was the one you said that I, when I said poutine? Butter tarts. Butter tarts. They're... <laughs> <laughs> they're sweet uh like a little a little tart a pie mm. uh, filled with uh, like a butter filling mm-hmm. um that i i didn't know growing up that they're canadian oh okay and people outside of canada don't really know them do you know coffee crisp chocolate bars i don't yeah that's canadian too yeah. mm. <laughs> that's stuff that when canadians go home if they're abroad, they'll bring that back for right. Reason. Yeah, yeah. So, that yeah, sounds like good. when my wife and I would travel to every once in a while when we would be in like like London or something like that, or we have friends that that lived in England. 
they would always bring hobnobs. Oh, you know that? those? It's a, it's like an oatmeal. It's an oatmeal cookie that has uh, like a fudge layer on it, like a chocolate fudge layer on it. Oh. So they would, there would be this, the specialty was a dark chocolate hobnob and they would buy packs of them and we'd put them in the fridge and then they would be just awesome snacks. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I've been to UK many times and for me, it's like. Fish and chips, maybe. How do I take fish and chips? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. The sausage uh, rolls or pies. Yeah. (laughs) Meat pies. Yeah. No, Totally. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? When I was in college in Toronto, uh, and I was not into orchestral percussion, and I was playing a Mahler One concert, mm-hmm. Symphony Number no. One, you know, and I soon learned how complex it could be just playing the triangle part. <laughs> so just trying to not get lost in that. But I don't know why in this concert, I played the triangle and then I thought to put the triangle beater in my pocket of my concert jacket. Okay. Which was, for some reason that happened to be, uh, you know, that popped into my head as an option. And lo and behold, I had a hole in my pocket. And okay. of course in the middle of a quiet part, I put it then in my pocket and it drops on the floor. Clang, 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 clang. I play an extra triangle role in the spot that, you know, didn't have the triangle. So that was an embarrassment. <laughs> so I learned to never, never put implements in your pocket during a concert. <laughs> <laughs> did you just like, w- w- did you like retrieve the triangle and then just hide on the ground? Like, I don't want, I don't want them to know that that was me or was it, it was too late. Probably. Yeah, no, I think I just pretended it wasn't, you know, like you just, I just let it kind of. <laughs> like it didn't happen. You didn't hear it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the conductor was not pleased, of course, but. I um, bet. <laughs> that's a, that's a good one. Another, another story from that era. Uh, I remember playing a, a wind ensemble gig reading for some reason. We were called in to play this concert and we were reading and, uh, mm. Somehow I got lost in the music. So I turned to my colleague and I was like, where are we? <laughs> and he started calling out numbers, 39, 40, 41. I was like, uh-huh. I have no idea where we are. And, and, and he was indicating that my part was coming. Yeah. Literally, I was like, play it. And I had to, I had to like basically... Uh, get him to play my part by 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 uh, admonishing him in the middle of a concert. Play my part. I don't know where we are. And you know, ironically, now I'm in an orchestra. <laughs> <laughs> Counting rests is part of my my life. It is. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, and last question: What one piece of art could be movies, books, bo- movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Wow. Okay. Well, I don't know if this is cheating, but you know, in my orchestra, we recently had a concert with our new music director, Yap Van Zweden, mm. who is 
the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. And that was an amazing experience. Um, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, like the music was music that I knew, Brahms one, Symphony Number no. One, and you know, Fledermaus and some Wagner overtures, but just what he brought to the music and how he was able to change the way the orchestra sounded within a week totally blew my mind. And you know, I had never heard the strings that full. He used to be the concertmaster of the Concertgebouw when he was younger for mm -hmm. 20 years. So he is a, a, a real uh, string. Uh, uh, he's well known as a sort of a conductor who could really bring out the best from the strings. And so that was a real, real uh, experience. Uh, but that's not a work of art. That was just an experience. Maybe, I guess, uh, discovering Sibelius Symphony Number no. 1, which we played on tour with our outgoing music director, Osmo Vanska, who's, uh, who was recently uh, in Minnesota for a, the last decade or more. Uh, and just, you know, playing Finnish music with a Finnish conductor, that was amazing. And that piece, I had, it was not in my, uh, you know, that's, that, that's, there's not orchestra excerpts for percussion in that. Although the timpani part is really pretty heavy, but just the, the music was amazing. We had some amazing concerts with him on that tour. Very cool. Yeah. All right, Ed, we're done. Thanks. Well, hey, you know, I, I know I meandered a lot. I hope I answered the questions, but it was real fun to, to meet you. And, and uh, you know, I hope that we can meet uh, in person. Yeah. Especially maybe it's because I'm here. I'm so far away from everybody. I feel like I, I love to sort of be in touch through just these podcasts. And it's been amazing mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, I just listened to your podcast. Uh, podcast with uh becca becca in hawaii um oh Lorito, yeah Lorito, yeah you know we both went to we studied with both Did she and mr abel both at uh northwestern and and she was at temple but i was at Rutgers. but you know we have similar backgrounds and you know we, she and i have have talked online but we've never actually met yeah so yeah i mean that's the world we live in now right we're on we're online so it was really cool to hear her talk about her experiences there. And uh, you're a great interviewer. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It somewhat goes without saying that's a pleasure to talk to all of these folks for this podcast, but it's on another level when I get to talk to someone who enjoys the show and listens to it regularly and makes that clear through our interactions here. So thank you, Ed, for your time and your continued support of the podcast, and I do look forward to when we can meet in person, either somewhere here or, I don't know, maybe it should be South Korea. It's time for me to get there, and that would be awesome. Thanks again, Ed. And following that note, this week's rave is Traveling. I already talked about this a little bit in the opening, but I really enjoy when I do get the opportunity to travel and when it's for work as well. I hadn't been in California for over a decade, 
So it was great to be there. But I'm also someone who really enjoys getting a chance to just walk around a town. While in Sacramento, we had an afternoon that we were able to just hang out in old Sacramento and downtown. And as I stated in the opening, we were blessed with incredibly good weather to do so. In Sacramento, Old Sac, as it's sometimes and kind of hilariously called, leads through a tunnel right to downtown. And it ends up right in the Doco District, which is an upscale dining and shopping area that is connected right to the Golden One Center, where the NBA Sacramento Kings play their home games and where the NCAA tournament was actually being held. Additionally, the park that surrounds the California State Capitol in downtown is pretty great and was a lovely place to have an afternoon walk. There were also a lot of great food options all over the town, as well as getting a chance to take in the Crocker Art Museum, where I was able to see a number of modern-day works, which was a lot of fun. San Francisco, as well, fantastic. I took the students to the Golden Gate Bridge to see that up close and walk on some of it, along with dropping them off at Pier 39 at Fisherman's Wharf to enjoy the afternoon. Of course, lots of time down there was spent with the sea lions. You need to spend time with the sea lions because they are both completely hilarious and, honestly, you learn about group social dynamics from them as well. I went ahead and walked around much of that lower area, took in famed parts of Lombard Street with its switchback hill, and walked up, and I mean up, to a park that surrounded Coit Tower on Telegraph Hill. It was great and tiring. I got driven around by my cousin Joe when he picked me up, and we settled in the Marina District for lunch and walked around some more. And then soon after, we had to head back. Lastly, it had been over 25 years since I last attended the NCAA tournament in person, which was amazing. I mean... And part of it was because we won a game. And you forget how much fun it is to win a NCAA tournament game. And it was really great to experience that with my colleagues here at Mizzou, as well as the students I work with on a regular basis. And that was the final high point to a very enjoyable basketball season under coach Dennis Gates. And I look forward to the future with him as the men's coach for hopefully a very long time. But back to my original point. Go travel if you're able to. It's totally worth it. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.